Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So good evening, everyone. Um, I'd like to begin again by respectfully acknowledging the Ohlone tribes, uh, which are the first nation peoples of the San Francisco Bay Area, where I'm speaking to you from, uh, and also the Massachusetts tribe out there on the East Coast, where Cambridge Insight is located. I want to start this evening with one of my favorite quotes from Krishnamurti, just to kind of place both the talk I'm giving and a little bit about um, our practice and how I'm thinking about and relating to Dhamma practice these days in a broader context. So Krishnamurti uh, is quoted as having said, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. It's pretty deep. So, Today, meditation practice has kind of become subsumed within the wellness industry, a multi-million, if not billion dollar industry here in the United States and around the world. Uh, and for many good reasons, because there is tremendous potential for meditation practice to heal our hearts, our minds, our neuroses and anxieties. And yet... Uh, it's easy to relate to meditation practice as kind of a band-aid and a way to become well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So we just look around the world today and the tremendous changes that are happening in so many different sectors of society, <clears throat> from the economy to the climate uh, to technology to migration, extraordinary changes at a very rapid pace and changes that are stressing the fabric of not only human society, but also the kind of fabric of the life support systems on the planet. So if we're using meditation to paper over some of the anxiety and discomfort that we feel in response to a world ripe with injustice, with inequality, uh, with destruction and violence and devastation, then we are actually misusing the teachings and the practice. It was Thich Nhat Hanh who said during the Vietnam War uh, that the monks realized they couldn't just sit in their temples and meditate as bombs were falling in the villages and people were getting hurt, that they needed to go out with their practice into the villages, into the streets and help the people who were suffering. And thus was born the uh, kind of concept and practice of engaged Buddhism, that our practice needs to be responding to the suffering of the world because this whole practice is about alleviating suffering. So here in the United States, we're you know, living through the trial of Derek Chauvin and the murder of George Floyd. It's a very historic trial and touches deeply for many of us, some, so many of our core values and represents so much about the history of oppression and inequality in our country. So how does our practice relate to all of this? It's a vast question, and it's a question that I hope each of us is asking ourselves today. For me, it's clear that this practice holds a key in being able to respond to the challenges of our times. It's also clear to me that it's not enough, that it's only one component. Some of what this practice can do for us is it can help us to heal ourselves enough 
so that we have the resources to respond, to engage, and to help. And that's, that's not uh, like a linear process that you practice and meditate until you're ready to then help. For many of us, we're doing both at the same time. For others, it might be a phased process. We practice, we engage, we practice, we engage. There are many other benefits and uh, aspects of the practice that can help inform our lives as citizens, our way of interacting with our society from having an analysis that's non-dual, that doesn't pit us against one another to understanding the causal net of conditions that create oppression and inequality that uh, perpetuate a caste system within our society based on race. So the, the potential for informing our life and using our energy and choices to lead to more peace and justice in our world is immense. What I want to talk about tonight is how our practice needs to be situated in order for it to do the work of healing our hearts and providing us a firm and solid basis to do the work that we're called to do in this world, whatever that is for each of us. And I really want to acknowledge that each of us has our own path and each of us has a role to play in the healing of our world. And that's going to look different for each of us. Not everyone's going to be on the front lines. For some of us, our work is raising children and doing our best to uh, educate them and imbue them with uh, values that can inform their lives as citizens. So I want to be really clear that I'm not coming from a place that has some assumption about what each of us should be doing. But I do have a very firm belief and faith that if we are engaging this practice in a wholehearted way, it will support us in whatever that is that we're doing to fulfill our potential as human beings and to contribute to our world and our society. <clears throat> so what's needed? I wanna talk about five different foundations that from my experience and understanding really need to be in place for us to be engaging with the meditation practice specifically in the most supportive and helpful way. And I wanna start with an analogy. I was very fortunate as a child to get to go camping and uh, spend time outdoors in Vermont in the Northeast. And one of the things we did once was uh, learn to make fire in the old fashioned way, not with a match, with a, a bow and a piece of string and a piece of wood and some dander. Very uh, arduous process. If you're trying to make fire, there are certain conditions that need to be present. So you need a certain amount of friction right, to generate enough heat to create a spark. And you also need uh, some fuel, some tinder. Uh, when you're doing it that way, you need uh, like dander, just very soft, fine material. And then obviously you also need oxygen, there needs to be air. So if any one of these conditions isn't present, you're not going to be able to make fire. If the wood you're working with is wet, if the dander is, is moist, if you're not applying enough consistent pressure with, uh, with the wood and the string. If all of the conditions are present, then you can get a spark and make fire. So our practice is the same. And the Buddha was very clear about this. His whole, the whole teaching of the path is founded upon uh, the principle of conditionality. When this is, that is. When this is not, that is not. It's the basic law that forms the Four Noble Truths, which is this understanding of how suffering arises and ceases. There are certain conditions in place for the arising of suffering. When those conditions are no longer present, the suffering ceases. 
So in the same way, there are certain conditions in the heart and in the mind that need to be present for our practice to bear fruit. For us to be engaging in the meditation in, uh, in the way that is most likely to lead to insight, transformation, and healing. So what are these conditions? So I'll say what the five are uh, and then talk about each a little bit. <clears throat> and I also want to acknowledge this is not one of the uh, kind of traditional lists that comes out of the suttas or the early Pali canon. This is something that I'm sharing just from my own experience and from my own practice. And we can point to different aspects in the texts that um, talk about some of these conditions, but they're not gathered together in any particular way uh, that I'm, as, as I'm presenting today. So the first is safety. You need to feel safe enough. The second is a sense of ground, feeling grounded in the present. The third is connection. We need to feel a sense of belonging, quality of friendship. The third is kindness and the fourth, sorry, the fourth is kindness and the fifth is interest. So safety, groundedness, connection, belonging or friendship, kindness and interest. So let's start with safety. So this is a core human need. It's one of our foundational needs as human beings to feel safe enough. And that occurs on a physical level and it occurs on an emotional and psychological level. We can be, physical, we can be physically safe, but not feel safe emotionally or psychologically. In terms of the, the context and the language of the teachings, this is often talked about as refuge. We talk about the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Refuge is the foundation of our practice. Refuge means safety, that we have a place of security. The precepts are a foundation for the practice. This is also about safety. It's about creating a context of safety in our communities, one imbued with respect one imbued with ethical sensitivity. It's about creating a context of safety in our own heart and mind. When we refrain from actions that cause harm, that leads to a sense of ease, uh, of non-remorse inside, so the heart can settle. Why is this so important? If we don't feel safe enough, our nervous system is going to be hypervigilant. Any of us who have suffered from trauma, if you're still carrying PTSD, you know this quite well. You know, you close your eyes and you feel that sense of not being, not being able to settle, that there's some, uh, some part of the mind that's like tracking, scanning. Am I okay? Where is the next threat going to come from? Those who belong to different historically marginalized groups, whether it's due to your gender, the color of your skin, your class, your ability, your sexual orientation, the daily assaults of racism, homophobia, transphobia, the class system in our country, all of this creates a psychological and emotional environment of threat that gets internalized. So the meditation community here in the West has over the last number of years, thankfully been starting to do a lot more work around diversity, equity, inclusion, recognizing that if our communities don't feel safe enough to everyone, if we can't create a space of belonging, we're not offering refuge. You know, if only people who look like me, who have white skin privilege, feel comfortable when they walk into a sangha, how can we expect people to feel at ease to meditate? So this sense of safety goes very deep. How do we create safety in ourself? How do we create safety in our communities for one another? And the key here is safe enough. There's the recognition that life is not safe. 
The world is not safe, physically or emotionally. We can't control the circumstances. But we can take steps to create a situation that feels safe enough, where our nervous system can start to settle, where we can start to arrive and let our guard down. So this is the first precondition for any meditation practice. I remember uh, when I was working at the Insight Meditation Society many years ago uh, as a cook, I developed a digestive disorder, very common in uh, Jewish young men, was a chronic inflammation in the, in the gut. And so I was trying to go about treating this condition and working with, you know, doctors and going to see alternative medicine practitioners, just trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, some of the folks on staff recommended this one body worker as a healer. And uh, so I went to see her for a couple times. And I remember this one, one of the first times I went to uh, receive body work. And I, I want to just acknowledge just like the class privilege of even having resources to receive body work. Um, and hopefully the, the nugget of this story will connect regardless of the context. So I was lying down there and she just put her hand on my shoulder. Made this kind of firm, steady contact and stayed there for, for quite a while. And there was something about the level of presence and patience in the contact of her hand, that after a little while, something inside started to relax. It started to let go. Like something could relax. Some quality of, of stress and hypervigilance. This is, this is the quality that we're looking for in our practice at the beginning is that sense of like a friend putting their hand on your shoulder. How do you navigate towards that signal that says you're okay here? You can relax. We're safe now. So each of us needs to find internally or externally, what helps us remember that experience of felt safety? And this is why with trauma-sensitive mindfulness, the emphasis is on initially just orienting, just taking in your surroundings with your eyes, your ears, noticing where you are, letting your body and your organism just take in okay, like I'm here, I'm in my own home, I'm at Cambridge Insight, I'm with my friend, right? I'm safe enough. And it's not something that occurs on an intellectual level. It's something that we need to take in in our tissues and our cells. So I encourage you to just reflect on this in your own life, in your own practice, where and how do you feel safe enough and then when you meditate to start from that place, can you start from that place of safe enough? So this is the first uh, foundation of contemplative practice. And the refuges, the three refuges can be a doorway to that. Recollecting the Buddha, the sense of inspiration, protection, the vision of awakening, recollecting the Dharma, the Dhamma, this path of practice, the teachings that exist. The sense of trust that others have walked this path before us, that we're not making it up. 
or sangha, the sense of connection, which we'll also talk about as a refuge. Okay, so we start with safety, with safe enough. The next foundation is feeling some sense of groundedness. The sense of presence that we're really here and that we can start to let go a little bit into the support of the ground. There's a very famous uh, mudra that you will see if you look at Buddhist art and iconography of the Buddha sitting beneath the, the Bodhi tree, the night of his awakening, and his hand is in this mudra with the fingers pointed down, touching the earth. Yeah? So the story is that on the night of his awakening, he was beset with all of this fear and doubt and craving is personified as Mara, the kind of embodiment of all of our uh, neuroses and unhealthy habits and patterns come to sort of plague the Buddha before his awakening. And the last one was kind of this sense of self-doubt, like who are you to be sitting here striving for enlightenment? And his response was to touch the earth and to call upon the earth as his witness. And so there's that sense of deep groundedness and connection with the earth. If you read the Satipatthana Sutta, one of the core foundational texts of the insight meditation tradition, you will see in the very beginning, the Buddha saying, you know, go to the root of a tree or an empty hut to practice. Why? Not only is there the sense of solitude, but there's that sense of groundedness, the root of a tree, an empty hut, simple, connected. So at the beginning of a meditation period, how is it to feel the ground beneath you? to notice that there's something firm and solid and steady supporting you. Can you begin to let that in? It's about feeling your center, noticing your spine, feeling the, the sense of something inside that's strong and supportive. So this whole path from the very beginning all the way to the final stages of awakening is about letting go. It's about releasing that which oppresses us, that which imprisons us in our heart and our mind. But you can't let go if you don't feel a sense of support. We don't let go into a vacuum, into a void. We need to feel held and supported and secure in order to let go. Like the analogy, if you're drowning at sea and you've you know, find a piece of wood, driftwood floating, you hold on to it for dear life. Someone says, let go. It's like, I'm not letting go of this thing until something better comes along. So our patterns of contraction in life, holding on to, you know, you name it, whether it's pleasure, certain habits, addictions, a relationship, an identity, uh, reaching towards something in the future, obsessing over something in the past. These patterns of holding on are there because we're trying to find some ground in a world of change and instability and insecurity. We're just doing the best we can. So to start to ease off some of those habits of clinging and fixating on things, we need something better. We need some support. So we can, we can find that sense of ground right here and now in our own body and mind. The Buddha described the Dhamma, one of the words he uses to describe the Dhamma is sanditiko, which means apparent here and now or direct. It's that sense that what we are practicing, what we are practicing to discover and realize is available 
in the present moment. We can touch it. We can know it directly in our own experience right now. And that can start with touching into this sense of groundedness. So just even right now, as we're sitting here, as you're listening, can you feel the contact with the ground? You know, your body's own weight. And what's it like to let that register? Can something settle? Another image that comes out of the early texts is the image of a mountain. The Buddha said a sage is not moved by the changing conditions of the world of praise and blame, fame and disrepute, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, just as a mountain isn't moved by the wind and the rain and the storms. So when we come to sit, when we come to meditate, there's that sense first of safety. It's like, okay, I'm here. I'm okay. I'm okay enough to go inside, to tend to my own heart and my own hearth. And then the ground, taking our seat with a sense of stability, feeling the earth, feeling your spine. Use that image of a mountain, if you like, feeling stability. There's something here supporting me from within. The Buddha called this the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, the first place to establish mindfulness. So this is the second kind of essential condition, going back to that analogy of making fire. If you want to make fire, you need all these things to be in place. If you want to meditate properly and have this path unfold, aim for safe enough, find the ground. Okay, next. So we're getting here, just at the very beginning of our practice. The next two factors are relational. And I was uh, kind of pointing to this in our guided meditation. We talked about the core need for safety that human beings have. Another core need that we have is belonging, connection. Human beings are social creatures. We have been living in small bands and tribes for tens of thousands of years. It's really only in, in the like blink of an eye in terms of evolutionary history that we are living these lives where we are so disconnected from a sense of being embedded in a community where we have a shared story, a shared purpose where we know our role, where we know all of the people around us and how we are connected to them. So the next piece that's so essential for the heart starting to open for the insight and healing that can unfold in contemplative practice is accessing and developing a sense of connection and belonging in the heart. I wanna read to you another quote. This is from Mother Teresa from her book, In the Heart of the World. It's one of my favorite quotes of hers. I think this has become particularly poignant and relevant during the last year of the pandemic. So she says, there is so much suffering in the world, very much. There is material suffering. There is suffering from hunger, suffering from homelessness, from all kinds of disease. But I still think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. The pandemic that we've all been living through 
has had so many impacts beyond the physical health. We've seen not only how the pandemic has revealed the long-standing deep inequities and injustices embedded in the structure of modern capitalist society, but we've also seen the, and the, the level of disconnection and alienation and the suffering of loneliness that's so pervasive. So how do we start to, how do we start to counter that? How do we heal that? How do we bring the sense of connection into the heart of our practice? If it's not there, many people, many of us maybe are still living alone, isolated, not having the connection. It's important to remember that the Buddha taught in a very different time, very different era. And this practice of solitary meditation, go to the root of a tree, go to an empty hut, was occurring in ancient India, where the ties and bonds of community were still very much intact. I had the good fortune of spending time in India earlier in my 20s when I was first introduced to the practice. And even to this day, one of the things that was very difficult to adjust to as um, a middle-class white Jewish American was the differences in personal space in Indian culture, where the people will stand much closer to you, make eye contact for much, much longer than in the United States, will be very forward in asking questions. So the practice of meditation that the Buddha taught was occurring within a cultural and historical context of intact communities, deep family bonds, uh, a relationship to physical proximity and space that's very different than the conditions here in the modern Western society where we have this kind of what I would describe as a very unhealthy, hyper-individualistic uh, society. So there's a need to counterbalance that and actually focus on the sense of connection so that the practice itself is occurring within a field of belonging. So the Buddha was also very clear about this and the importance of this. And again, if you go back to the earliest teachings and see what did the Buddha teach when lay people came to him and said, I hear you're enlightened, like, how do you do it? What's the deal? Teach me. He wouldn't teach meditation. He wouldn't teach the Four Noble Truths. Does anyone know what, what he would teach people first? What are the first things he would offer or suggest that people do in their practice? Go ahead and put it in the chat if you, if you have a guess. Laurel is suggesting Sila. Yeah, Charles, Donna. Before he would even teach ethics and sila, he would teach dana, which is generosity. He would say to people, well, go and give, share, not because you feel like you have to, but in places that you want to and notice what that feels like. And only after that would he then teach sila, ethics, not causing harm, and then from there, meditation. These are the three pillars of the Dhamma, dana, sila, bhavana, generosity, ethical living, non-harming, and mental cultivation. So it's worth considering, why would he teach generosity first? What's that about? So think about it. When you give someone a gift, what does that do for you? And again, I just want to invite you to just Think about it for a moment or two. If you give someone a gift, and again, not because you have to, not out of a sense of obligation, a, a real gift, you want to give someone something. What's the effect of that? What are some of the things that occur 
in your own heart and mind and also in that relationship if you give someone a gift. I just wanna invite anyone to share. A sense of hope and joy, so we feel uplifted. Mm-hmm. We get, we're connected to love, living my love for you. Right, there's letting go. We start to see the value of letting go because to give, we have to let go. So there's a, a sort of deep wisdom in the Buddha saying, try giving first as a way of introducing people to the joy of letting go. Thinning of self-preoccupation, right? We lose that sense of like, I'm so important. Mudita, enjoyment for the other person. So it's rich, right? There's a lot that gets revealed. What about that relationship? What happens in a relationship when we give someone a gift or when they give us a gift? We have a connection, right? The connection deepens. There's a sense of a bond now. It's deepening the connection. And in that deepening connection, we start to feel like we belong. I have a connection with you. I have a connection with this person and that person. Every time we give a gift, we make another connection. And we start to feel a sense of belonging, that we are embedded in a a community. We feel a sense of place. Not only that, we start to recognize that we have something to give. And gifts don't just need to be material. Of course, we give our time, our energy, our love. So we start to see our own self-worth, our own goodness. So this is about feeling connection, feeling a sense of friendship and belonging. And these are some of the conditions that are necessary for the practice to unfold, for the heart to open. This is from the Buddha. He says, with regard to external factors, I don't see any other single factor like friendship with admirable people as doing so much for one on this path. One who is friends with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. So he's speaking there, not just of the experience of a connection, but of particular kinds of connection. Developing friendship with others who are wise, who are ethical, who are virtuous. So there are two parts here that I'm talking about. One is the internal experience of connection. And this can come from many different corners. Even when we are alone, we can start to feel connected if we reflect on the people who have supported and loved us in our life, on the people whom we have helped. We can feel connected to the trees and the soil and the water. We can feel connected to our ancestors. We can feel connected to the lineage of practitioners to our spiritual teachers. We can feel connected to future generations. So reflecting on connection, where are the places that you feel connected and starting to recognize that we are embedded in a web of connections, that we are not alone, we are never alone. That creates a different space in the heart for the practice to feel a sense of belonging, that we are embedded in a, in a field of connection. And then there are specific connections with friends. This is the power of Sangha. And really just looking to see where do you have Sangha in your life or where can you build Sangha in your life? Where can you build connection with others who are on the path? And that as an essential support for our practice. Why? Because we learn from others, we, we kind of energetically pick up on other people's way of being. So if we surround ourselves with people who are living a, a healthy, wholehearted, good life, who are kind, who are patient, who are wise, just by being around them, it starts to have an effect on us. 
And all of that, all of that sense of connection helps us begin to relate to ourselves and our own heart, our own mind, our own internal experience in a different way. And this brings us to the next two factors of foundation for the practice, which are friendship and interests, interest, kindness and curiosity. So these are part of right intention or right attitude, the qualities um, of the heart that we bring to the practice. So just to review, we start safety. How do we get safe enough? Then ground, how do we feel a sense of being here, feeling supported, connecting with the earth? Connection, bearing in mind that we are embedded in a, a, a web of relationships and connections, feeling tapping into a sense of belonging and place to whatever degree we can experience that. And if we're not experiencing it, taking steps to cultivate it inside and outside. The next factor is kindness. And this is one that, that we work at. All of these are things that we cultivate over time. So if you're listening to this and as I'm going down the list, you're like, nope, 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 that's okay. And we just we just build little by little. We just move in that direction. So kindness is the whole tone of this practice. It's uh, Ajahn Sachito says it's the atmosphere that we sit in. What else are you going to sit in? Ill will. And so we we. We try to create an inner atmosphere of goodwill, of benevolence. That's not easy. This is why in the meditation I introduced this um, visualization of being with a friend. Because we know how to be kind to others. We know how to be patient with others. We know how to be interested in others. So the potential is there. It's just about remembering to turn it inwards. So we're learning in this practice to be a good friend to ourselves, And good friends are kind, they're patient, they're accepting, they're loving, they see the good in one another. This is uh, from Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the great meditation masters of the 20th century from, uh, from Thailand. He was... Uh, quoted uh, by Jack Kornfield in his introduction to the book Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. Ajahn Buddhadasa spoke of the healing power of the trees and walkways at his monastery, Suan Mok. When I asked him how so many Westerners who begin the spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred can best approach the practice, he replied simply with two suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of metta, loving kindness. Then they should be taken out into nature, into beautiful forests or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they too are part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place in the midst of things. And so right there, we hear Ajahn Buddhadasa talking about these, these, two, these two qualities or foundations that I'm referring to, the sense of connection, being embedded in nature, knowing that we belong, and kindness. And it's very easy to develop a sense uh, that this meditation is somehow there to fix us. Like all of our personality quirks and the things that we don't like about ourselves, that it'll sort of polish all those up or make them go away. 
I'm going to give a whole talk uh, later this month on how to get beyond the kind of self-improvement project orientation to meditation practice. This practice is about something so much deeper than trying to have a better personality. Ajahn Sumedho is known for talking about his own personality in very humorous and disparaging ways. Like whenever I start thinking about myself, I get depressed. You know, the personality is hopeless, was some of the things he would say. It's about seeing through the deluded nature of the personality as something that will ever be satisfactory and discovering a much, much deeper kind of freedom and resourcefulness inside. There's a certain quality of violence to perfectionism, to believing the narrative that says, I have to be better, I have to improve, and this practice is going to fix me so that someday in the future, I'll finally be lovable, acceptable, good enough. The Buddha said, um, this practice is to be realized in the here and now. It's available. It's not something that happens in the future. He also said, let's see if I can find this other quote. This is a paraphrase from, uh, from the Udana. I visited all quarters with my mind and I didn't find anyone dearer than myself. Self is likewise dear to every other. Those who love themselves will never harm another. Sharon Salzberg paraphrases that saying, you can search the whole universe and you won't find someone more worthy and deserving of your love than yourself. Let's take that in for a second. You can search the whole universe and you won't find someone more deserving of your own love. It's tragic to me how we withhold our love from ourself. What would it be like? What would it be like to have a sense of kindness and forgiveness towards yourself, steadily, available. That's the quality we want to bring into this practice. Not because we're pretending everything's okay, not because we're overlooking our faults or the things that we've done that have caused harm, but because that, that love is what's needed to heal and transform and awaken the heart. That's the love that's needed to face the hard truths about the things we've done that we regret, about the pain and the violence in the world, about the role that we may have played or our ancestors may have played in the brutality and the harm throughout history. We need that love. So how do we bring kindness into our practice? This is the, this is the next foundation. It's just starting to learn to have a, a, a sense of warmth or care towards ourself, however small it is, just start there wherever you can. Loving kindness practice is a very powerful way to develop this quality. Or, or using that analogy I offered of being with a friend or thinking of a friend with you. Find your way in there. Find your way to remember, to recollect, to bring kindness into the heart. Okay, I want to bring this to a close soon so we can have some conversation and discussion. So I'll just mention the last quality briefly here. The last quality is interest. Curiosity. So the whole goal of this practice is learning. 
It's not about trying to achieve a certain state or get something. It's about learning what our own mind and body are, how they function. And you can't learn anything if you're not interested. One of the analogies I like to use is, I don't have my watch nearby. If I had a watch, I would hold it up. It's like, if you have a pocket watch that's broken and you want to fix it, you might open it up and look at it and see like what's going on here. Does it have a battery? Is it wound up? And you'd study it. You'd look very carefully at it to try to figure out how it works and what's happening there. That's the spirit of the practice. There's a sense of kindness. We're doing this because we care. And then we're interested. How is this whole thing working? What is this mind and body? Who am I? What am I? What is it to be alive? Why do I get so stressed out? Why do I feel so anxious? Why do I beat myself up so much? And it's not so much that we're like asking questions and thinking about it, but we're allowing the heart to be interested, to really sincerely take a look at our own heart and mind, at what it is to be alive, to be awake, to be human with the possibility of discovering something so profound that it can transform our whole world. This is encapsulated in another word that the Buddha used to describe these teachings and the realization of truth that he discovered. The word is ehipasiko, come and see, or the way we would say today, check it out, check it out. That's this quality of interest, to check it out. You can't be interested if you're hypervigilant, right? So that's why these these five foundations, they support each other. We start with safe enough, touch into a sense of groundedness, connect in the heart, remember our connections, touch a sense of belonging, feeling of place, kindness, warmth, and then interest. What is this? What's happening? What can I learn from this? So I'll stop here for the evening. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Please take what's useful and just leave the rest aside.